Hello, welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast. We've made it to the after party, everyone. The show is over. Welcome, welcome. Correct. This is the after the end of the world party, should we say? <laughs> the after the end of Evangelion party? This is it. Rapture's over. Instrumentality is over. Project complete. Podcast, at least for now. Season one, complete. Correct. How does it feel? How do you feel, Joseph? Well, it's funny that you ask how I'm feeling because I, I if I'm a little slow today, people, the, just so the listeners are aware, I had my second COVID vaccine 48 hours ago, a little over 48 hours ago now, and now I'm fine. But yesterday, I I certainly felt like it was the end of of the world, which is not <laughs> to discourage any listeners who may be like on the fence about getting the vaccine from getting it. Like if you're on the fence, please do, because now I feel great and I have this weird optimism about the future that I, like I wasn't quite capable of totally accessing, I think, even like just a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So that's good. But yeah, it like. I got mine on a Friday for a reason, and I'm glad I did, because <laughs> Saturday morning fucking sucked. Yeah, we actually were we were going to record this yesterday um, and ended up doing it today for that exact reason. So who knows? Maybe some people got in just under the wire there with their their takes and their questions and whatnot. So yeah, so the, the plan for this episode, you know, before we get into the reflections on the whole journey that we just took, is that we're going to sort of have upfront basically do some corrections, do some reflection on the the whole podcast. And then we're going to get into the listener mail and listener DMS and tweets and whatnot that everyone has sent us over the last few weeks as, as promised. And thank you everyone who did send stuff in. It's like really great to see all of the, uh, everyone sending their thoughts back to us. It's, it's really gratifying. The feedback really has been, I'm going to say this again in a future episode because we're recording sort of season 1.5 out of order, which is new for us. We recorded the entire first season in 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 order. And you know, I've actually already recorded a few episodes covering the rebuild of Evangelions. No spoilers mm-hmm. for those, but you, you may hear me say this in the future. Just how, how overblown I am by the uniformly positive response to in my little little like labor of love here. I, I fully expected literally no one to listen to this, so it, it um I don't exactly know how to process like the mail we're about to read. <laughs> yeah. It it was it was so strange because like the way that we did this, you know, we had this all like in the books for so long that, you know, I've been listening to the podcast as it's been coming out every week, um, just to kind of like keep it fresh in my head and see what people are responding to and whatnot. And, you know, there's that moment at the end of last week's episode where <laughs> it sounds like we're like Peter Pan trying to get everyone to clap for the show to bring it back to life or something. Right. <laughs> um, it was weird and- listening to that, knowing that, like, we've already we're already and we're already researching spoilers season two. So, <laughs> <Right>. like. <laughs> It was such a like a weirdly fatalist way to leave things off. And like now, a year later, it's like we didn't need to be that dramatic about it. <laughs> well, but okay, but it fits the film. And it's worth noting mm-hmm. that like in that end of Evangelion episode, like I'd watched the end, I think the day before. I was and and it also like emotionally laid me out the evening before we recorded that episode. Like my partner 
I think she was at school. I think we did that on a Saturday and I watched it on a Friday afternoon. And she like came home and she was like, what the fuck happened to you? And I was like, I watched, <laughs> I watched the movie that ends my favorite cartoon. And she's like, and you're in the bedroom with the lights off. <laughs> That's very much the vibe of the movie. <laughs> that is the effect that it has. Um. <laughs> it's true though. I don't know why, but it's true. Anyway, it, point being, Yes, we were in a fatalistic mood then, which befit the state of the world. I am mm-hmm. in a beaten up but optimistic mood now, which I think also befits the state of the world, so long as World War III doesn't break out. <laughs> which is to say that over the past 12 months, even though some things have gone way better than I thought they would, and I'm not talking about the podcast, I'm just talking about life, right? <laughs> um, but like that isn't to say that there weren't mistakes made along the way, because there totally were. Uh, and Ian and I are not innocent. We made a few teensy weensy oopsie whoopsies, pleasey do forgive me. Uh, but this is an opportunity for a mea culpa. Mm-hmm. So we'll take it. Yes. So I feel like there's there's minor kind of incidental correction stuff, and then there's broader philosophical errors in our approach that I feel like we might need to reckon with. Sure. So first up, one of my friends named Peter, almost immediately after we started the podcast and the episodes were coming out, hit us up with a very important correction about what our analysis about the global warming and climate change aspect to the show. So we kind of sprinted over the uh, the state of discourse around climate change in the 90s and sort of downplayed it. I think that's a, a matter of recency bias on our part. And Peter correctly points out that uh, global, you know, in his text message, he said in episode two of Evangelion pod, you guys say global warming wasn't on the mind, but the late eighties and early nineties was the height of the fear of the ozone hole. And everyone was afraid that Antarctica was going to melt and raise sea levels. This is a great catch, not just, uh, to correct the historical record, but also I think his choice of images there of the sea levels rising and Antarctica melting feels very apropos for Evangelion in particular. So we should have, caught that and seen that coming and expected that to, you know, matter in our analysis of the show. Peter's 100% correct. I'm going to go ahead and and take this one, I think, on the chin, mostly because I was responsible for a great deal of the research. It's, It's worth noting, however, Peter, that like, you know, in your message, you say was worried, like people aren't still worried about that, but definitely people are still worried about that. Um, I think it's also worth Noting that um, since we are, as you're listening to this, Ian and I are in the middle of like our coverage of the rebuilds in in a from the production standpoint, and something I, I didn't catch in this series that I think maybe the the rebuilds go out of their way to correct is the rebuilds do front load the environmental message way more than the series does in my opinion since mm-hmm. since now having seen them. Right. I think in particular, the second rebuild movie really zooms in on the environment in a way that the show never really does. Yeah, we'll get to it. But there's like a whole I think it's almost like 15 minutes of exposition that is like that like is overtly tying. No, no, no. (laughs) Taking good care of the oceans is like very key to the problem that like humanity is facing in this perspective post apocalypse. And Mm -hmm. you don't get that from the show so much but 
after having seen that and then thinking back about the show, it was there and I just wasn't paying attention as close as I should have been, maybe because I was preoccupied with other things. So thank you, Mm -hmm. Peter. I also want to kind of zooming forward. I, when listening back to the end of Evangelion podcast, I wanted, I think it's clear that we didn't quite cite our sources on a particular philosophical concept, which I feel a bit bad about because it's a, it's a heady idea and we just sort of breeze by it as if everyone knows what the fuck we're talking about, which (laughs) I don't think is necessarily the case. Um, So we mentioned something called Hegelian recognition. This is the philosopher Hegel had some very clear ideas about what it means to be like a human subject and the relationship between those things. And we were drawing directly from a video by a YouTuber who goes under the name of Jonas uh, Chika, I believe is the, way that you pronounce that, please correct me if I'm wrong, but, um, or Chaika perhaps. And he made a video called Hegelian recognition and incels that I found to be really, really insightful and really clear in its explanation of what the concept of Hegelian recognition is. And also his analysis of the, you know, incel phenomenon, I, I found to be very useful in our own analysis of Shinji Ikari in the movie End of Evangelion. So that's that video really informed a lot of my personal thinking along those lines. So I want to apologize for not mentioning that on the podcast itself or doing a deeper dive into that particular idea. It's interesting to note just while we're talking about Hegel briefly. Since we've got the time, we've got the space, mm-hmm. why not? We avoided it the first time. You know, we're, we're, we're citing Hegel, but it's worth noting that there's a lot of, like, criticism about Hegel, um, that he was an instrumental thinker in laying down the track for what would become modern authoritarianism, authoritarianism, I should say. You know, so please, we use Hegel. Hegel's useful, but approach Hegel the man with a grain of salt if you've never, like, read into him before. Also, if you've never read Hegel before, it's impossible to fucking understand. Um, <laughs> he's, he's the most impenetrable thinker I've ever encountered. And I watch things like Evangelion for fun. I don't know what that tells you. <laughs> it's also worth noting, this is sort of interesting, but two of the other philosophers that, that Evangelion openly cites are Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard, as we like noted before. Mm-hmm. And Schopenhauer and Kierkegaard both like kind of thought Hegel kind of blue. Yeah. So, <laughs> which isn't saying Anno, Anno thinks that. To sort of to your point about the way that philosophers can be used as tools for analysis rather than taken wholesale. You know, the other, you know, big trend that comes out of Hegelian thinking is uh, like left-wing politics. Uh, like communism in particular, Karl Marx, very clearly a Hegelian in his way of thinking. So it's possible to take a a single set of ideas and use it for wildly different aims, uh, depending on, you know, your particular philosophical mission. So the interesting thing that I've, you know, found in my completely ad hoc research of uh, into philosophy as just sort of a hobby is that it seems like everyone is sometimes like the criticisms of someone kind of proves the value of that person's work to begin with and interesting things happen when other intelligent people kind of take a pickaxe to a previous philosopher and uncover new stuff out of the process of doing that which i think is maybe this is incredibly grandiose of me to say this but i think is also kind of why a project like this podcast has been really fun is like taking a pickaxe to evangelion and seeing what falls out sure sure i agree completely i 
if you know, I only like bring up the criticisms of Hegel because I know that if I don't, someone will slide into my DMs at some point in time and be like, are you a Nazi sympathizer? <laughs> um, I'm not. Right. But it's also interesting to take the long view of of philosophy in in the light of modern day, the cold light of modern day, so to speak, you should say, because um, a great deal of like the Western philosophical tradition now is like uh, an Internet age modern could could so much be read as like. Other philosophers just subtweeting the last philosopher. It's just it takes them a year to write a 5,000 page book that can't be accurately translated out of German. Right. Right. Yeah. Philosophy is just the history of takes, you know. Right. Like. <laughs> but it's the first it's the first academic art. Right. The hot take is the first modern thought. Let, let me think. Are there any other sort of big picture things or. Well, actually. Sure. Apropos of the last correction um, and me being unable to pronounce this dude's name who made this great video, I do want to apologize for my continued mispronunciation of a variety of names on uh, over the course of this podcast. I would hope that you could tell when I got it right and when I didn't, and I will do my best to continue to get it right and not be incorrect in the future. But I know that I fucked up a few times on a lot of these names. So yeah, neither of us speak Japanese. For for what it's worth, I took a year of Japanese in college, and I got a D. Mm-hmm. So, although that wasn't because of my pronunciation, that was because writing Japanese is very, very difficult. And I have yeah. terrible penmanship, even in English. For what it's worth, that's why. But no, neither of us are, 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 are even semi-fluent in Japanese. So I, I hope that people will forgive us. Yeah, please, please be patient with us on that regard. And if you have been with us throughout this whole journey. Thank you for bearing with it. Unfortunately, it's not going to stop because we've got a whole nother season of this, at least. Um, <laughs> there is one. I had an I had a, a correction sent to me, too. And I apologize because I can't directly quote it because I'm having trouble finding the comment. It may have been deleted since I responded and apologized for it. But my good friend Rob Klugerman, who I went to college with wonderful guy sent me a message or left a comment to the effect of that when i'm talking about the metaphysics of evangelion i use the term judeo-christian mysticism or judeo-christian mythology and the most up-to-date academic thinking is that that's not the most correct term you could use because Mm -hmm. really mythology and mysticism are more Christian phenomena than traditionally Jewish phenomena. So mm-hmm. I should just say Christian mysticism, even though they're drawing from the Kabbalah or the Zohar as a source text. Yeah, I, um, I am somewhat complicit in this as well, because a lot of my thinking along these lines is a result of the book, a history of God by Karen Armstrong, which I find to be a really, really useful uh, book about the development of all three of the Abrahamic religions. And that would be also my own correction to that particular terminology is like, usually when people say judo Christian, uh, it's a bit of a dog whistle, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I was not aware of that before I got that comment from Rob <laughs> and then did some digging. I was like, Oh, I've made a big oopsie for 30 plus years of my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
especially because like the idea that Islam is somehow separate from Judaism or Christianity is like kind of ludicrous. There's all sorts of cross pollination of philosophical concepts across all three of them. And, you know, a lot of uh, Islamic thinking has totally affected the history of Western philosophy as much as, you know, you, as much as people try to cloister it out of that system, it is as much a part of it. You know, it, it can't be extracted from the history of these ideas. So our mistake on that front. Yeah. I was raised Catholic. Can we blame them? I feel like that's okay. Pretty safe bet. Yeah. Yeah. Usually jerks. <laughs> the Jesuits slightly less blame, maybe like just like 5% less, but like the Franciscans 5% more. That's just, and I'm, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the shitty nuns personally. So I know that there's another broader complaint that you've had with our framing of the show, which is about our tour theory. And we get into this more in the rebuilds, but I wondered if you wanted to maybe touch on it a bit here too. Sure. We, and we come from a long line of people making this mistake, so do forgive us, but it's it's just the way we were raised. We were drawn that way, baby. Mm -hmm. um, we consistently refer to Hideki Anno in the course of this podcast as the director of the series. I'm going to make this correction again, but it's worth noting that what we say by director of the series is probably more accurately captured by the term like showrunner in mm -hmm. English. Um, he was the writing lead and he does have directing credit on multiple episodes, but it's not accurate to say that Hideki Anno was the director of every episode of Evangelion from front to back. That's right. wrong. And we spend a lot of time like trying to use the show in a way as a skeleton key to uncover this man's mode of thinking. And that, the act of doing that comes from this French film critic idea called a tour theory, a tour being the French word for like author. And it's this idea basically that like that, like the director is the most key person in the production of a piece of cinema, including we're including television in that as an idea. Right. And 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 that the director is the grand shaper of things more or less and by crafting a body of work, d directors make some sort of historical or philosophical personal argument about uh, the human condition. If we're going to like zoom out and, and be very hand wavy. And I feel like I don't have time, even in a podcast as like broad as this medium is. I don't feel like I have the time to do more than really just hand wave a lot, frankly. Mm -hmm. So. We're, we're complicit in, in that idea of like framing Anno as like the sole creative mind behind the series. And that's not really accurate. And I know it's coming later in this episode, so we're going to get into more of it. But like many of the other creators involved in making Evangelion what it was, key creators, really potent people, uh, went on to have their own very interesting careers that they later became director or otherwise on that um, rub up against our interpretation of Evangelion in, in interesting ways and even like outright refute the series in, mm -hmm. in, in cool, fun ways. In a lot of ways, I'm actually like a bigger fan of tracing the careers of everyone involved in Evangelion than I am in just Anno's career because I'm not familiar with his entire body of work, yeah, frankly. As, as we'll get into later. <laughs> so, yeah, 
Um, so yeah, that's a mistake. Look for a, a good section on that in our first rebuild episode. Yeah. I also think that there is maybe some issues with auteur theory period that should be addressed to some degree. Um, like for example, my, one, my other favorite TV show is Mad Men, um, which I think I've mentioned a few times on this podcast. And that's a show that like deliberately even attacks the idea of auteur theory inside of itself. Um, right. You know, like the, the most celebrated episode of Mad Men is the episode The Suitcase, which revolves around the idea of who gets credit for an artistic creation and what is fair when it comes to the process of collaborating to create art. And in a lot of ways, I think people have took that episode to be a statement about the process of making Mad Men itself and how, yes, there can be the one person who, you know, gets the label showrunner and gets to be, you know, the sort of media facing part of the show that is has to take responsibility for all of the, you know, work of all the others and has to cobble it into something resembling a narrative that they can sell to the media um, that does in a way cut out a lot of the creative uh, instincts and creative expertise and labor of those who make the show possible. So even if Hideki Anno does have like final say on many elements of the show, it would be a grave disservice to discount all of the other voices that went into getting to the point of where Anno says yes or no to a particular thing. And I, I think it would be stupid of us and like inconsistent of us to, um, to ignore the work of the rest of the people that made Evangelion possible. Yeah. Well, we're, I'm, we're going to in this episode and in future episodes, like try to take some steps to, to remedy that. Um, and justice for Shinji Higuchi. You're my fucking dude. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's worth, here's a funny thing. I've, so I, I've just started watching the Sopranos for the first oh, time. Nice. Yeah. 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 It's a thing I've it's a thing I've missed. It's great, by the way. I, I, in I case like you it haven't a lot. heard, you know. In case you haven't heard, there's actually like some interesting Evangelion parallels in that like psychoanalysis is like a core engine of the storytelling. Totally, right? <laughs> that's so funny. Thinking of the the Doctor Malfi sections as the angel fights of each episode, you're kind they of they are just... the angel fights of each episode. It's weird. Like in a in a bad universe, Shinji grows up to be Tony Soprano. Right. Yeah. 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 Although <laughs> in I feel a like shitty post-apocalyptic mansion, McMansion. the Sopranos is more of like a mom issue show, at least from what I've seen of it, than a dad issue show. Um, so that's like a different flavor of the the, the psychoanalytical element. That's, but I think that's correct. It's like an absent father, but a present and maleficent mother. Mm-hmm. Right. But I am I'm having the same phenomenon that I had originally with Evangelion, except now for the first time as an adult, where I'm like seeing the main character. And I'm like, I shouldn't be empathizing with this piece of shit. And yet <laughs> I feel all of this. Right. Why? <laughs> but the reason I the reason I bring that in is like I, I even had this experience this week when I was like, OK, David Chase made this series. What the fuck else has David Chase made? And I, I look at his filmography. And I'm like, oh, nothing. Like, this is the only good thing he fucking did, except for Northern Exposure and Kolchak the Night Stalker. Um, I hear the movie he that that he did after the end of The Sopranos was pretty good. Not Fade Away? Yeah, I hear I, I heard that that was pretty good, but I haven't okay. seen it, so I can't say. All right. Well, I guess I'll add it to the It'll take a long time, but I'll add it to the list. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's, there you go. Auteur theory. It's not that good. 
So, not sufficient. Says, not sufficient. Says the guy who like loves Alfred Hitchcock more than anyone else on the motherfucking <laughs> planet. Um, but what that will be do? very useful for our next season, incidentally. But uh, we're well, we're gonna get into it. We're gonna get into it, right? And we're getting into. There's also some interesting philosophy stuff in our next season. Is it the time? Then it seems like it's the time. I, I think I will say it. We're going to do in season two a bit of a curveball. We're not going to cover one television series. We are going to cover the career of a director, an actual director, not just a showrunner. Someone who, and this is another curveball, Ian has more familiarity with than I do. We're going to cover, I think, maybe Ian's favorite. Am I right? Favorite? Not favorite? Fa- Close favorite favorite anime director? Favorite yes. animator? Yeah, I would yes. put that in there. Yeah. Correct. Season two of the Human Instrumentality podcast will be Satoshi Kon's Bizarre Adventure. <laughs> Fuck yes. Well done. Already naming it. All right. <laughs> I did that in the shower last night. <laughs> I am extremely excited to do this. I feel like this is I have like hijacked the DNA of this podcast in order to do this second season, but I am uh, happy to do so. Look, an important part of collaboration, and this goes against a tour theory, is being willing to run with other people's ideas, especially mm-hmm. when you see the merit in it. There's a lot of merit in this idea. We can't go into Satoshi Kon in depth right now, but there's a lot of merit in the idea. I knew it was coming. And you know what? This is going to be fun because unlike Evangelion, Satoshi Kon is someone I like binged when I was young. And then... I just never returned to him. I kept like I kept being like, oh, I'm going to rewatch all these movies someday and then never did. And like Ano, there's like big gaps in my watching. And mm-hmm. so it's going to be really fun for me to in retrospect, try to fill those in. I'm, I'm really excited for that project. Yeah, I there's many of his movies that I haven't seen in a long time and I haven't done a full rewatch of Paranoia Agent in like eight years, I think. So there's plenty to, for me to relearn and to rediscover and re-experience um, with some fresher eyes. And now, I mean, like, I don't know about you, but this doing this podcast has like put my analytical skills into like the next gear when I decide right. to use them. Like has same in your experience, has the way you've watched shit changed after doing this? Yes. I think that's, Correct. I've been like more attuned to the idea of attempting to fit media I'm watching actively on first watch into a philosophical framework mm-hmm. with, I, I must be honest, sort of mixed results. In my low grade fever yesterday, I binged the entire fourth season of Castlevania and very difficult to find like a lot of philosophical value in that show, even if I had a good time. You know, I was just like, this is superbly well hand drawn animated, and it's a five hour long Children of Bodo music video. And I'm just going to have to accept that I can't read into everything the way you can read into Evangelion. <laughs> Not everything's a bottomless well, it turns out, but I'm trying. This gets into like one of the big question marks that hangs over like why did we do this and why Evangelion which is like is it that there is just so much there in this show or is it that our conception of what something being there even is is shaped by a show like this you know what I mean 
Like this is like the first like deep and uh, emotionally and philosophically validating TV show that I think I, I have in my life in a lot of ways. And so I even think like what I'm looking for in terms of being able to dredge up a lot of analysis out of a piece of art comes from my experience with Evangelion in particular. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm trying, I think like we're in a chicken or the egg scenario and that's also Mm -hmm. in and of itself kind of a paradox, right? Because I think you and I both encountered Evangelion really young and it's worth noting that we, you know, in an era of a generation where, golden age of tv or quote-unquote peak tv as critics like to call it. i don't like that term but like i brought the sopranos earlier supposedly they say the age of peak tv in america began with the sopranos in 1999 mm-hmm. i didn't have hbo when i was a teenager i couldn't watch the sopranos the first like quote-unquote peak tv show that i could see was uh, probably like Mad Men or Breaking Bad. I don't know when the, they start close to one another, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Breaking Bad, I feel like was the one that cracked that door open for me. Right. I think the same. I had that experience with Breaking Bad first. I got into Mad Men uh, in the later seasons because I knew it was ending. Right. And I think you can revisit those series in a similar way way i know mad men's your favorite i'm more of a breaking bad guy personally but uh, you know i see the merits in both but i just don't know that i had access to things on a serialized scale that that worked that way before Mm -hmm. then it's also worth knowing that like evangelion is like it's really compressed right 26 episodes that are about 20 minutes of real content seems like a lot or seemed like a lot then but now is so much more digestible totally than than any of these shows right i think quote unquote like if we're gonna be paying with broad brush strokes deep deep like deep stuff existed before even in animation but i don't think had like serialized narrative through line storytelling that i can think like i'm i'm thinking specifically of the twilight zone Mm mm-hmm Right. Like you could see the Twilight Zone on the sci fi channel every like New Year's Eve and Fourth of July. They'd play it for 24 hours and they'd always play every like episode everyone watches. I remember like seeing all of those, you know, but, you know, but Star Trek, I guess. I mean, Twin Uh, Peaks predates Neon Genesis Evangelion. So that would be another example. I didn't get to see Twin Peaks till I was older. Again, that's like a was. thing literally being born when that show came out. So like, I obviously wasn't watching it live. I was a, I was a toddler, I guess what, I mean, if we're talking about like predecessors to breaking bad, you got to talk about the X files. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So I, I guess maybe the X files was going on when I, when I was adolescent and I was aware that the X files had some sort of pretension toward making a statement about like our place in the universe and the nature of belief. Maybe this is bold. Sorry, X-Files stands. I'm going to go ahead and say that Evangelion, like, makes more more, and also more concrete claims about the human condition than the X-Files does. This this also gets in sort of obliquely into another question that I had about our process of doing this podcast, which is we noticed that, uh, just to break the fourth wall a bit, the our longer episodes tend to do much better than our shorter ones. To an extent noticeable 
a, a noticeable yeah. extent, which makes me wonder, like, should we have gone longer earlier? And also, was that would that even be possible for some of the earlier episodes where we're talking about a show that at that point does not have as much content to dissect? Or do you think we like played it appropriately early on? Sometimes I'm, you know, there is stuff on the cutting room floor. I'm not sad any of it's there. But there were at times like stuff that I thought like you said an interesting or I said an interesting thing that didn't make it. But I don't think that means that more was needed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let me pull a Hidekiano here and say like, we did it as good as it was. It's an accurate representation of what we did and we captured the process. And, you know, I, why would I change it except to literally redo it from the ground up? <laughs> right for cash <laughs> yes if doritos and pizza hut come through and say remake the whole thing and you know add in some new characters uh solely for the purpose of merchandising yeah we'll we'll make the uh the earlier episodes longer as well <laughs> <laughs> i'll put random like audio artifacts in just to make things sound cooler <laughs> Yeah, a lot, a lot more bass drops, a lot more, you know, boo, 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 like, yeah, I like that. Like that. <laughs> I side note, I've always wanted a rap air horn. Oh, I mean, I can figure out how to put that into this episode. I think I can manage that. No, I mean, like a literal one, just for me. oh, like well, I just, just want like uh, around. Yeah, yeah. No, I just want like a little button on my desk that, like, at random, I can just go, like, I just want that. Do you have any other reflections that you'd like to? to reflect upon <laughs> for this weirdly, podcast. Sure. Like weirdly doing this show has actually brought me like closer with um some, some people that I'd like kept in touch with over social media that I hadn't thought about in a minute mm. in an interesting way. It's made me sort of nostalgic. I think, I don't know. I think we're going to get into this later, but like, in listening to the podcast, I've begun to embark in a project where I've revisited the things that were like shaping me as a person around the same time. Mm-hmm. And I've actually found that so far really interesting and really fruitful to be specific. I'm talking about the books, his dark materials, which are like my like tween fantasy Bible the relationship that a lot of people have to Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter really, truly I have with his dark materials, um, maybe better known in America as like the golden compass. That's the name of the first book. Right. Right. Um, yeah. But for my birthday, my partner bought me this like beautiful hardbacked omnibus of, of all three. And I've been, I've been reading it and um, it's been an, a, amazing to be able to recapture those emotions and, have more clarity on them as an adult, but also like now as an adult, that's more media savvy. I can see how the prose works, how the storytelling works better. And it, it doesn't take the magic away from me, but it does change it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big example is also not a television series, but I've been revisiting Neil Gaiman's the Sandman. A uh, word. Yeah. I just, I read that fairly recently, but Awesome piece of work, gotta say. Amazing. I think I was reading that while I was watching Evangelion, literally. And my my interest in Evangelion began, you know, when I was 
still getting ready to be confirmed as a Catholic, mm-hmm. but was already having really serious doubts about my faith. Weirdly enough, I think like reading his dark materials is what is what like started to hammer in that first nail and Evangelion probably like finished it off, I think. <laughs> um, so these are really like instrumental pieces of work for me as a human being mm-hmm. and, and revisiting them has, um, I think brought me some clarity on like why I am the way I am and who I am. Mm-hmm. Is that too hand wavy? No, I feel like that's a, a, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm interested about the, the connecting with other people part of it. Like, Oh, it is kind of cool. Like the people that hit me up about being into this podcast were not necessarily like my closest friends, but exactly. We're, yeah. We're all like, I guess my, now I know my friends that give the, the most fucks about Evangelion, right. <laughs> which is like, Oh cool. This is like an interesting new, cause I don't know about you, but over the course of the pandemic, I feel like my social circle, not just like in terms of being out in the world, obviously that's shrunken considerably, but even like who I keep up with on a regular basis through text messages, through emails or on the internet or whatever has like really shrunk down to a pretty small amount of people by comparison. And so it's been really cool having this podcast as like a way to like loop in a variety of people that it's like, Oh, I I did want to talk to that person and I haven't had a good excuse to, you know? Um, And it's, it's really gratifying to kind of have like an icebreaker in the form of having made this, you know? Yeah. I think there's also a weird, like almost like parasocial intimacy thing where Mm. it's because I think if you love this show, you've probably had the like I alluded to earlier, like the the blacked out window bedroom moment that that this show like almost encourages, like it stems from that. And it almost is like trying to engineer that in your in your life. That would certainly be like if if the memes are to be believed, that is definitely how people generally feel by the end of this show, you know? Right. And, and you do have this weird, cause it's an isolating experience to go through that. But on the other, and, and this is the same way that I think the series is. Cause I think the series is like profoundly like isolating and alienating. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. on the other end, you've gone through this weird cathartic trauma. And then when you know, other people who've gone through this show, even people who like, I didn't, people I've like had like serious conversations with like, like some, and and like some powerful moments with in the past, I didn't know that they went through the same thing. And so like, there's been this experience Mm -hmm. where I've like thought about people from my past and been like, Oh, you had the same moment I did. And suddenly I I have a new affinity. Maybe that's just me. I'm a weirdo. I'd be really excited to, you know, talk individually with a lot of the people that have talk to me about this show um some of them who have submitted questions and i hope they're listening to this episode um same it does create like an interesting shared experience or shared um you know i think even again the parasocial thing is very true like the fact that if you're someone that has been listening to this podcast all the way through you probably have like a sense of you know i distorted sense of like who the two of us are and you know maybe have 
there's there's that's this sort of stuff is unavoidable it's just the nature of the medium but like also it it means that like i've been in your head at least right (laughs) once a week for the last few weeks and that's an interesting experience um very weird to be somewhere where you're not you've given us a solid 20 hours of direct access to your neurons without like real time feedback (laughs) But that makes me think of like who I've done that else with in like other other like podcasts and films and things. The other thing I think it feels like is um, people may not have this may be like some that only Ian and I have experienced in in the circle of people who listen to this podcast. But I don't think that's true. Um, You know, Ian and I both come from a musical background and we both have esoteric musical taste. I think that's fair to say. That's a polite way of putting it, yeah. Sure. Well, sometimes we like quite popular acts. It's true, yeah. Um, more popular acts than is than is like cool, I think, right? But also, I think you and I both have like some like super niche taste. And I'm thinking specifically of of the very unique, this seems more common in metal than anything else, but the, the metal or punk experience, specifically post-punk, like metal and post-punk is where you get this, right? Where you get the act that is super popular overseas, and plays a 500 person room in America mm-hmm. and doesn't always sell it out. But they, because they only play a 500 person room in America, they don't come to America very often. And so you get a 500 person room that's got 300 people in it. And they're all plastered against the front of the stage, like crying, like, right, yes, right. Paradise Lost came and they're playing as I die half heartedly and I'm bawling. <laughs> right, and right, um, right. having that experience with other people is like a weird, super powerful social glue. Yes. Yeah. It is kind of like there's a, a wink and a nod or a hat tip that happens when it's like, right. You know, it's one thing to go on on to because the interesting thing about doing this podcast is it's kind of put us directly into interfacing with like Ava social media, like the the social right. media culture around Evangelion. Um, and you can get inundated with that sort of stuff because of the way that the algorithms work. And you forget how like when you actually have like a relationship with another person, then like both of you have this like, oh, wait, one of us kind of moment like that is that still feels like entering into a secret society to of like fandom which is kind of one of the great things that fandom can do or being like heavily engaged in a work of art can do can you know i want to maybe move away from the idea of, of fandom and say maybe more of the more refined appreciator of art <laughs> i don't really feel like i'm part of ava quote-unquote fandom even Mm -hmm. though as i look as i look at things objectively that's false like objectively i am a fan right right by any by any reasonable measure but i don't interact with the the community of anime fandom the way that i interact with the community of music fandom right that is like the the music fandom thing is like more of our social web you know that is like the Correct. world that we move through we do not and that's because like that's where we're coming from so we've just spent more time there and have built more career connections and social so connections through that yeah um we have not done that with the tv anime film world in the same way at least i speaking for myself i can't say that i live in that world socially the way that i do in music 
No, I don't. I don't either. And like, in a way, I think that's actually been to our benefit, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. But I also wonder if it's been a blind spot at times in that, like, like there's got to be people out there who are more important about this than I am. Right. Right. As opposed to Paradise Lost, just to say something I already speak, we're like, here's this like weird goth metal band from the UK. We're like, in America, I am in I am in the upper point oh oh one percent of people who know facts about that band. Like, I can say that with real authority. I can't right. say that about Evangelion. Totally. I would hope that our somewhat outsiderness to the fan culture has allowed us to say things that like to find our own lane in talking about the show and Rest. yes, you know, our own particular lens that we use to address it with. And I think we still address like the big beats of the fan culture where they're obvious, but I think sidestepping a lot of the maybe more mimetic points of conversation has probably done us well. I would hope, you know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I still want to talk about screaming geometrically because <laughs> it's so good. The, yeah, I will say this, like the, the, the fan culture around Ramiel in particular. Genius. I love it. <laughs> Keep it up. Chef's kiss. Like, Don't stop, incredible. baby. Particle beam me right in the face. All right. Do you want to answer some questions? Let's do this. Let's take a quick teensy teensy weensy break then do some fan questions fuck yeah be back shortly people don't know this but i am currently drinking a uh extremely potent beer because <laughs> it's the after party this is uh a barrel aged imperial stout it's probably a bit late in the year to be drinking imperial stout but whatever this is a beer that i don't have regular access to so i'm drinking it uh it's by deschutes brewery in bend oregon it's called The Abyss. Uh, and I'm saying here that if anyone from Deschutes is listening, let's collab on a beer. Uh, let's make the Dirac C mm. together. That would be, yeah, like heavy ass stout, I'm imagining, for the Dirac C. Yeah. yeah. I, I need you to do something that's going to put me into a blank white void, like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm drinking some tequila and some Snapple. So I'm, <laughs> wow, that is an interesting. <laughs> never in my life, but yes. now I'm sort of curious to try. It's like a high school drink, totally not in a bad way, <laughs> right? Yeah, fitting for the you know the this is if Shinji drank, this is what he would what he would drink. Um, Tequila and Snapple. That's, that's actually actually an interesting question. What are the various cocktails that each of the characters would drink? Clearly, Asuka just drinks Negronis. She is Campari and gin. Uh-huh. I feel like she's also would would ride the German beer thing about as hard as she could. But um, her German is, I guess, really bad. Apparently. Is, yeah. is my understanding, right? We're, we're, we've done our own mailbag question. Misato's clearly like, like the Captain Katsuragi is a boiler maker. <laughs> yep. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like Kirin and some kind of incredibly potent, like... What's the equivalent of Steel Reserve? No, Steel Reserve is a beer. What's the equivalent of like Wild Turkey, but from Japan? That's what the Captain Katsuragi is. Mm-hmm. You have to remember right? that she she doesn't have a sense of taste, so you can go completely fucking wild with whatever the hell she's drinking. Right. You know? Like paint thinner. <laughs> That's basically like, and, and she's going to drink it and smile and Ooh. go to work the next day. I've been there. 
Millennial, millennial icon Masato yeah. Katsuragi. <laughs> I feel like Ray just wants like flavorless seltzer and vodka. Lean, 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 lean. lean. It's not embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lean, lean, and um, what do they call a vodka soda? A skinny girl. <laughs> the, the condescending name for a, for a vodka soda. Right, right. Yeah, yeah one yeah. of those, but with lean poured into it. That's a ray. So what would be the most like indecisive cocktail? Because that would be whatever Shinji drank. So it's like, oh, I want this, but I also I don't want to drink, but I do want to drink. Like what <laughs> that it- the most indecisive cocktail is you take a, a Long Island iced tea. Okay. <laughs> and then water half of it down with soda water. Right. So it's just a watered down Long Island. It's the longest island, which I guess is Japan. Isn't isn't like the main island of Japan, the longest island in the world. That's the Shinji Akari is like it's every liquor in one and it tastes a little bit like something, but it's so weak. You can't get really fucked up on it. Mm hmm. That's that's the Shinji Akari. Not the in that case, I guess. What's the Snapple? I guess that's the Toji. This is Toji. This is what Toji Toji. drinks. Yeah. (laughs) Squatting in his tracksuit. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Snapple and tequila. Yeah. Shoot some hoops. Let's get a kid. Kensuke, I would believe, would be like an IPA snob, I think. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's Uh, right. Hmm. Are we going to do the whole cast? Are we like doing this or should we move on? <laughs> What's the most condescending drink, abusive drink you could think of? That's the Gendo Ikari. I feel like what we're missing is the Gendo Ikari. I feel like Gendo, whatever he drinks, he drinks it straight. Yeah. yeah he's just neat. Mm-hmm. Very expensive scotch neat. Yeah. Like just imagine him like sitting at that giant desk. He doesn't offer any to Futsuki. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> Fuski's um, a teetotaler, for sure. Yeah, maybe he has like one well-prepared thing of sake at like a year. Yes. you know, at like the holiday party, and that's it. Correct. Like, <laughs> Which he leaves early mm-hmm. to go home to no one. <laughs> I feel like you never see where Fuski lives, and you never see where Gendo lives, which are weird omissions in in, in retrospect. Yeah. Gendo, right. I think just lives at the office. Like I, I bet he never leaves and he's just yeah. a freak like that. I think he's got like a nice room though. Like I bet he's got like a nice, like a bed with fitted sheets and a, mm-hmm. and a cotton duvet. Right. And like maybe like one really well-made vase with a flower arrangement on the dresser in the corner. Right. A lot of like black lacquer. That's yeah. what I'm seeing. Like Gendo's like, penthouse over the geofront apartment as where whereas Fuski's apartment cramped cluttered newspapers everywhere like he's got to be a guy with like yellowing newspapers all over the place and totally. multiple expensive shogi boards that's him close it out Ritzko and Kaji what is the rapiest drink that's Kaji's Jaeger <laughs> bombs Jaeger bombs <laughs> Saki bombs is that racist I maybe but I could still see him doing the thing where you put the two chopsticks on top and pound it till it falls. I could actually see Kaji doing that. Either that or like if it's spy Kaji, he would take like a, a martini and think he's really suave about it. You know? Sure. But it'd be like a Burnett's martini. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's bad at it. 
It's bad at being <laughs> vodka. Like he's right. bad at being 007, right? <laughs> Just a Coca-Cola and a roofie. That's Kaji. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck him. And um, uh, Ritzko to close it out. Okay. That's the hardest one. Is she like a wine person, maybe? No. She's mm. like a hard drinking lady. She smokes enough to be a hard drinking lady. Mm. I'm told by my bartender friends that one of the hardest cocktails to make is what's called a Shanghai Sling. Haven't heard of it. But basically, your point is like that whatever Ritzko drinks, it would be difficult to make. Difficult to make. A Singapore sling, right? Uh, And a Singapore sling is made with, it has a lot of ingredients and they're hard to get into balance, right? Okay. Gin, Benedictine liquor, cherry liqueur, lime juice, simple syrup, club soda, lemon slice, and a maraschino cherry. And you serve it up. Yes. Uh, Singapore sling served up is the Ritzko Akagi. That's my vote. Okay. All right. With that out of the way. (laughs) (laughs) Are we keeping that in? Yes. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Um, So we've answered the first two questions in this doc. So we're going to move on to the next one. From my friend Henry. Uh, He sent me a article in Kotaku with an interview with Hideki Anno where he says, contrary to previous public statements about the show, that Evangelion is a robot anime. And that's an interesting kind of eggheady question. Do you consider Neon Genesis Evangelion to be a robot anime? And why would the creative team behind Evangelion deny that classification for so long? Well, let me just pull my glasses further up my uh, the bridge of my nose and let me think about that. Um, I think you could argue that since the Evangelions are not technically robots, that it's not a robot anime. Right. It seems like a very literal way of talking about the show to say that it is not a robot anime because the Evangelions are not robots. But if we're talking about what it means to be a robot anime in general, I think Evangelion absolutely qualifies. Does that seem fair? Yeah, and and I've actually had this thought like a couple times. No one ever takes this tack, but I think what what Evangelion in a weird way was really trying to do is take the genre back from Mobile Suit Gundam. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is is take it back to Great Rydine and Mazinger Z and and like the 70s superhero type from a genre trope standpoint that is i think like part of of the project gotcha um and in order to do that it would have to be a robot anime it can't right it can't not be a robot anime and do that so i think like the the vagueness along those terms is like to me a marketing move you know it's like when like the guy in mastodon says that mastodon aren't a heavy metal band anymore it's like nah, right you are, I get why you're saying that culturally, but like, shut up. <laughs> you're right. still playing heavy metal, whether you right. like it or not. I mean, also you could just be like a cynical contrarian fan and be like, well, yeah, cause you're bad at it now. Mm-mm. Yeah. I mean, 
I like the last one fine, but the ones before that, not so much. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> um, I think that's where we stand on the robot anime thing. Yeah. Want to move on to the next one? Let's keep going. Uh, Henry also asked, uh, he sent me a clip of a Godard movie that he was watching that had some very, very Evangelion-like cutting between images and then black and white text in the same sort of font back and forth. Yeah. And and suggested, uh, is Hideki Anno, and we'll take that by, you know, diluting the auteur theory part of it, are the makers of Evangelion fans of Jean-Luc Godard? And you've... You seem like you have an answer here. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I think it's really realistic that Hideki Anno, if he's not at least like a fan of Jean-Luc Godard, like inter- what is a fan, right? If he's not mm. like a Jean-Luc Godard enthusiast, I think it's very re- for certain that like Jean-Luc Godard is like part of his thinking. Um, so for like listeners who don't know, Jean-Luc Godard was in the 60s uh, French film critic that became... A, a film director mm-hmm. um he's so he was part of kahir du cinema the magazine that coined a tour theory i believe and his first movie breathless is like a f- super high speed weirdo film noir that also quotes existentialist philosophy that was made on a shoestring budget are we seeing some some similarities And so famously, he didn't have like a movie camera. He just had like a personal camera to do it. So it couldn't hold more than like 60 seconds of film at a time or some Mm -hmm. amount of seconds. Don't quote me on the amount of someone knows the exact amount of seconds. It can only hold like a very short length of film at a time. So like the way that he compensated for needing to stop the camera all the time was just like hyper rapid cuts. And that certainly is a pretty anno thing to do. Uh, there's other directors that I think may have like more of an overt influence on Evangelion, though. Um, mm-hmm. One of our listeners, my friend Edgar Sargent, pointed out to me that um, acclaimed Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu also loved close-ups of inanimate objects. Mm-hmm. And he's been watching the show with listening to us. And like, so I saw him a few weeks ago and, and, and he said to me that um, he he felt that like the shots of the phones, etc., were the like the insert shot kind of thing. Yeah, direct. He, he felt like direct homages to Ozu. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. I'm not super familiar with Yazujiro Ozu. It does remind me a lot of Fincher now that like when we're talking about it, I feel like Fincher has like this kind of fetishistic approach to insert shots a lot of the time. Like he's very into like the materiality of what's on someone's desk and that sort of cutting style. But obviously Fincher, I think, would be almost the the same generation as Anno. So I doubt that they have too much cross pollination of interest to of influence to each other. They seem to be making stuff like almost too simultaneously for that to be the case. If you know what I mean? I'm sorry. I'm still back on you saying the words in, in a row fetishistic inserts. And I think, <laughs> yes, that's also part of the formula, but I don't know what that has to do with Ozu. Uh, <laughs> fair, fair, fair. <laughs> sorry. I can't. I'm sorry that I need to take everything back to the anal fixation. Um, <laughs> It's an it's worth, podcast, man. It's all good. It's worth noting that there's another super popular anime that is like more overtly influenced by Godard. 
Mm-hmm. And that's Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, yeah, I think Cowboy Bebop definitely is drawing a lot from like the French New Wave scene in general. Uh, of course, also it's drawing from a whole bunch of explicitly Western filmmaking styles. That would be an interesting show to talk about. I don't know if I have that much interesting things to say about it, but there's a lot there um, for anyone who's like interested in connecting the dots between Western uh, filmmaking techniques from the seventies and eighties and nineties connecting the dots from that to cowboy bebop, I think would be a, a fruitful critical exercise. Certainly. Would it, would it be people who know a lot about movies like maybe you and me? I don't know. We'll see who can say. So, uh, the next question comes from our reader, Rio Miyayuchi. So Rio asks, I'm curious about your two's opinions of Anno's love and pop films and the Kerry Kano anime, which in America is known as his and her circumstances. Uh, it's worth noting. We actually got another question about this topic. Well, so I'm going to read Rio's full email. Uh, so this is only a bit tangential to Evangelion, but I was curious to know your thoughts on Hideki Anno's love and pop film, as well as the anime, His and Her Circumstances, or Kari Kano, that Anno directed. The plot lines and their world are vastly different from Evangelion, but has the same psychoanalysis of teenagers, as well as that experimental visual style to depict that psychoanalysis that comes up in the lighter end of Evangelion. Um, I haven't seen these. I honestly don't know too much about Anno's work outside of Evangelion, which is kind of to our previous point about the limits of our auteurist breakdown of Evangelion. It would actually, if we were going to be sincerely doing auteur theory, it would behoove us to to watch this stuff and chime in. I have. I also haven't seen Kano or Love and Pop. I know that when I was getting into Evangelion, Kano was the thing that magazines were covering. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, so like Kano was still coming out and he did. So he did Kano and love and pop both one year after the end of Evangelion. So for what it's worth, these are the things that I've seen that aren't Ava related of, of Hideki Anos. I've seen Shin Gojira, which I like. I've seen the rebuilds. I guess those count. I've seen Gunbuster. Mm-hmm. which I like. And I've seen, uh, he did a film called Royal Space Force, The Wings of Honia Mise. He may not have directed that, um, but that's sort of like one of Gainax's like early films. And I, I've seen that movie and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. That I've seen, and I've seen the 2004 Cutie Honey movie, which is garbage, <laughs> which is like god awful. Is I haven't seen it since I was in high school, but my recollection of that was like unwatchably bad. I think that's actually part of the reason why I put off watching the rebuilds was I disliked the Cutie Honey movie so much. Mm-hmm. I like the theme song, though. So, yeah, we'll, we'll have to get back to you on that. I, I'm certainly interested in seeing where Anno took his style after Evangelion. So. Yeah, can't say definitively yet, but I'm definitely interested in learning more. Uh, So we got a ton of questions (laughs) um, from one of our listeners uh, named Marta. Thank you so much for sending this in. Uh, So I'll ask the first one. I don't know if we'll get to all of this. I don't know if all of them will stay in the edit, but we'll just plow through as many as we can. Number one, uh, do either of you believe in the time loop theory why or why not? What evidence supports your opinion on this theory? 
I'll, I'll answer first. I, so this is like the idea that I think this is in particularly in regards to the rebuild movies. Like I think this theory only came about after the rebuilds came out, which is that the story of Evangelion after the end of Evangelion repeats infinitely and that the rebuilds themselves take place in a loop after the events of the show. Gotcha. I think that there's very little in the actual text of the show to support this necessarily. Um, at least in the reading that we've laid out, like, you know, my particular interpretation of the end of the show is that the show kind of breaks out of itself and is commenting on itself, which I think makes any idea of a loop taking place impossible because it has a definitive definitive end point in the line of the story. And I think this, this comes down to a lot about like how you interpret instrumentality as it happens in the show. And I think like, I know our mutual friend Langdon has also hit me up about his ideas about the idea that instrumentality allows for infinite possible different versions of Evangelion to produce themselves. Wait, Langdon DM'd you about an Ava theory and didn't DM me about it? It came up in the course of a, another conversation. <laughs> he, oh my God, Langdon, we've been working together for so long and this is how you treat me. But I, I see Langdon's point on that. Um, my particular attitude is that the story of Evangelion has a definitive end, like an, an inevitable end that it's rocketing towards, and that all of the other subsequent tellings of the stories are based on changes in who Shinji is at the start of the story, and that changes how the story ends. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I, I think that that theory is compatible with the ideas that people are getting at with the time loop theory. I just don't think it's literally a time loop. You know what I mean? Right. I, I just find like time. Tr I'm looping time loops in with time travel here as a phenomenon. And I realize that like that's not totally correct. They're sort of distinct. Um, But I find time travel as a narrative device inherently in infuriating. Mm. Forgive me because I'm actually about to like suggest things later in this episode that do weird time <laughs> shit. So like I, I read my own hypocrisy here. Okay, right. and like obviously everyone loves Back to the Future, right? Which is also a show that posits, "What if you could fuck your mom?" Uh, I've avoided like reading the time travel fan theories just because I like I find anything involving like time paradoxes that isn't Metal Gear Solid inherently infuriating. Or Terminator. I also like Terminator. Terminator fucks, uh, but only the first two movies. So. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, anything beyond that and what I'm going to talk about later in the episode that involves, like, time shit, I just don't want it. Oh, and the movie Time Crimes. Also very good. <laughs> so, yeah, like, <laughs> clearly there's a, there's many exceptions, but I get the broader point that you're saying. I especially find it irksome when people assume time travel in stories that haven't explicitly made time travel the point. You know what I mean? R right. That's like, yeah, that's an easy way out in uh, in analysis that I doesn't I don't think is as applicable as people seem to believe that it is. If you added time travel to Evangelion, that would be the point where I would say, OK, this is too much. Yeah. Right. Like that's that's it. And and what's what's funny is like we're going to talk about I'm going to mention later. I know this like a time travel show that gets to a point where I say, OK, now this is too fucking much. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. so just hold on to that. We'll get there. 
Cool. Uh, so Marta also asks, do you feel that Hikari, oh, poor Hikari, class rep, was an unnecessary character? If not, why do you think that she was important to the character plot building? What I'm do you so, think, Ian? I'm so glad that this worked out so that I get the first crack at this question. Yeah. Absolutely the fuck not. <laughs> like, I love Hikari's presence in this show. I think that she, well, so she doesn't need to be a main character to be an important character. Yes. You know? like yes. Th- this is, if we're talking about like what makes the show what it is, not every single character can be one of the three main characters. Like even Ray isn't one of the three main characters in the way that the story actually works, you know? Right. Like not every character can be in the spotlight and be under the analysis that the show takes to its characters the way that say Shinji, Asuka and Masato are, you know, like, and I don't think her presence in the show, like, I don't think it's any, any statement of lesserness that she is not one of those characters. She serves an incredibly important function in her role, you know? Right. Yes. I would like to see it expanded somewhat if I had my absolute like druthers about the, this kind of thing. Like I, I think it's pretty clear from like the, the way that the show ran down that when we're talking about like the ending stretch of the show, I wish we had more Oscar and Hikari. Um, right. Just in part, because I think that that would help flesh out Oscar's character, not so much that it would flesh out Hikari, but I think that their relationship is interesting and shows us a side of Asuka that we wouldn't normally see. And of course I would love more Toji and Hikari because that's like one of the most heartbreaking sequences of the whole show. So having more build up to that would be nice, but I also think it works great the way that it is. So I'm not complaining. I agree with 95% of what you're saying, except I don't like, I, I, I don't think, I don't think we need even like one second more of Hikari than we get. Personally, mm-hmm. like it would be nice to have more of her and Toji, but I think that's like a long way of saying it would have been nice to have more Toji, mm-hmm. right? Like, it, and I know that we complained about the boys a lot, but I think that's because we know what's coming with Toji. And when you know that, seeing like the earlier episodes with Toji being, and I, here I'm taking a question about a woman and making it about a man, I apologize, <laughs> but like. It, I, I, I see myself. I know what I'm doing. But at the same time, I'm kind of sitting here like, if you know what's coming with Toji, it makes you want what's happening earlier to be more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And maybe Hikari is a way to do that. But at the same time, th- the really important function that Hikari serves this in the story is giving Asuka someone to box with that isn't one of the other leads. Totally. Because she... And I think maybe that's part of why you why Asuka works is because she's one of the only characters that has someone to interact with who doesn't have the same stakes as the nerve staff, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, Hikari doesn't care about, well, cares, but Hikari doesn't have, like, angel shit to deal with. She doesn't have nerve politics shit to deal with. She doesn't have pilot shit to deal with, right? And so she sort of exists for Asuka to, like, throw jabs at and for her to be like, yeah, champ, keep coming. What if you did a hook here? And, and like, that, like, builds something in Asuka, it socializes her in a way that right. I think is actually necessary for our understanding of the character. Like Asuka's introduction when she arrives in Japan, like after the, you know, the fight scene on the aircraft carrier and whatnot, it's like established that she's incredibly popular at school. And the only like tact, like thing that we can put our fingers on and say like, that is true is her relationship with Hikari. 
you know? Right. Like they kind of create this like shorthand of like, these are the two like most popular girls in the school as far as we know. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so I don't know what you'd add. I would say like maybe a bit more of Hikari and Asuka, but that would involve writing more Asuka stuff, which obviously both of us are fine with, but (laughs) Um, I don't, I don't know that like, this is a very finely crafted balance of stuff and to add more would require taking other stuff away. And I don't know what that is, you know? Right. Yeah. I agree completely. This is another Marta question. They're all Marta questions. Marta, we love you, by the way. (laughs) Like really went above and beyond with this. Um, They're not all Marta questions, but mostly Marta from here on out. It's very clear from the beginning that the series has a considerable amount of quote unquote fan service. At what points do you think that certain suggestive shots were important to establishing Shinji's psycho psychosexual issues? Uh, Where do you think it crosses a line? Do you think there's a bigger issue with the ways that anime broadly speaking, I'm assuming often sexualizes children and where do you think that stems from? So, yeah, tough, tough question here, but I think an important one to address. That's real rough. I go into this in our our episode on Rebuild One with our guest, Mm -hmm. um, because I do think about this a lot. At what points do I think that certain suggestive shots were important to establishing Shinji's psychosexual issues? I guess that the one that's hard to get away from is the Ray meet cute, even though I don't like it. Because they mirror, like, the touching of the breast when Gendo gets his arm ripped off in End of Ava. Yeah, right? yeah. Like but I, I can't help but feel like that is, like, maybe Anna retroactively trying to give importance to something that's clumsy. So I don't know. Maybe this is a swerve and a dodge. But, like, I, to an extent, the whole show is about Shinji's psychosexual issues. Right? So, like, I don't know how you... So here's here's how I would think about it is because I think we mentioned this early on in the the beginning of the show, too, is like I think specifically about like the way that like Shinji and Masato interact when Shinji first moves in. Yeah. And the way that the camera really uh, heavily leers on Masato during those sequences. And. I think that this is similar to like generally when a, a female character is first introduced in Evangelion, there is more cheesecake and male gazy shit than there is later on in that character's arc. Like almost yeah. by the time any of the characters become real characters, that stuff stops being applied to them in the same way. And I think we can take that to be like Shinji's first interactions with these characters is that of a horny 14 year old interacting with various women in his life. And so you can hand wave away a lot of the sexualization as being uh, occurring through the lens of Shinji Ikari. But I don't think that quite does the trick. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also think it, it it's interesting because Shinji's like only very quietly horny. Yes. His his horniness is so so quiet. Like in in a way it almost seems like the series wants him to like be like pop a boner in public. You wimp. Right. 
right. uh, instead instead of just like being anxious that you might, right? I think those things work with Misato because we know that like Shinji's part of his defense mechanism is the negative fantasy that everyone hates him when we know that's not true, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in the same way, like in Misato's deconstruction, we know that her like desire to be sexually degraded is part of like a defense mechanism fantasy for her right and so like from that perspective the camera looking at her in that way makes a lot of sense now let me complicate that in two ways first of all i don't think the series does totally right by misato sexually because i think it is a very fair thing to say that if Misato consensually and responsibly wants to be degraded by people, then that's absolutely okay, right? The show never, like, slices it that finely. And so that makes that tough. The other issue is that Ian and I are 30. Mm -hmm. 30 plus years old, right? And so we're both much more comfortable, even in in the idea of an illustration, leering at a 30-year-old person, than a 14-year-old person, even if that 14-year-old person is effectively rendered as an adult. Which brings us to the second part of Marta's question, which is, long story short, really fucking complicated, and I don't have a good answer for. Like, yeah. I, I don't like the idea that I, as an adult, am being asked to consider sexual attraction to a young teenager. But I also like have the wherewithal to understand that first of all, there the age thing isn't the same in the time that the series was made, and also like in the culture wherein the series is made. So like I get that. And also, like I I also understand that like visually, we're gonna talk about this in, in a future episode, right? Visually, like 14-year-old Asuka is effectively drawn the same as 30-year-old Misato, just a little shorter right right i mean yeah it's it's tough there's levels of the loosey goosiness of the human anatomy in animation creates a lot of really really uncomfortable questions along these lines and i absolutely agree with you like i every time every single variety of the ray shinji sequence in her apartment makes me want to just leave planet earth. I don't want to exist when that is happening because it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. And to be, I I think like going further, this sort of shit does turn me off from watching a lot of anime in general. It like is a thing that I'm like, will I have to deal with this with any given anime that I pick up? Yeah. Something like that. I, I struggle with as like an American and you know, I think it's reasonable when anyone else has similar complaints about the genre. But but like all this being said, I think like in the show itself, a lot of it is justified as coming from Shinji's perspective. But at the same time, if other people uh, who are new to the show have a lot of trouble with that particular aspect of it, I think that it's totally fair to have a lot of trouble with that. It's all you mentioned, you know, other anime. And it's also like worth saying that, that like, the genre leaned into this not because of Evangelion, but after Evangelion during like the, the commercial downturn in, in the late two thousands in a big 
cynical and I think like gross way. Mm-hmm. Like Moe fucking sucks. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Miss me with all of all of that. Okay. So I, I'm not, I'm a, I'm like a golden age anime guy, silver age anime guy. I guess like Evangelion is like silver age, you know, like I'm really not trying to keep up with the trends. And a lot of that is because of this phenomenon in particular. Mm-hmm. I will say, however, that one of the things that makes Evangelion powerful, as gross and uncomfortable as that scene is, is that Evangelion I think I've said this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. Evangelion really does try to grapple with the problem of teenage sexuality. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a a full-hearted way. And um, when you don't get that, what you get is kids being educated about their sexuality via the fucking Disney Channel. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 that's bad right and like growing up to be sexless marvel adults you know like right i don't know if that's worse than the moe thing but i think they're like of comparable badness mm. on a broad scale so yeah i think that is about as far as we can go down that particular line of inquiry at this moment yep so i i don't know i don't know if i have a good answer for this one but okay so it's um, what do you think happened after the last scene of end of Evangelion? Like after Oscar says disgusting. Yeah. Nothing fucking good. <laughs> That's for sure. I mean, it, it's, it does. It, well, there's where your time loop gets set up, right? Because like, there's no, there's no optimistic read. Like it's like, Oh, and he's about to fucking bash your fucking brains and then starve to death. Um, <laughs> or worse shit. Right. I mean, it's the door is left open about whether or not other people may be able to return to their forms if they have like the will to live. So who knows, like as that's happening, like everyone else that he knows may just like walk out of the ocean and see him doing this and be like, dude, what the fuck? Um, Right. I think it ends badly for that Shinji almost no matter what um, for that exact reason. Like, I think you can't just end the world and expect to get away with it. Um, yeah, especially after you've had like the incarnations of God tell you like eight times in a very short amount of time, like, you know, we can stop doing this whenever you want. Right. Not liquefy him. I'm good with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I try I try not to think too literally about that ending sequence because I think it is supposed to be extremely like a poetic image and a poetic scene. Right. Um, and yeah, the minute you start thinking maybe a bit too like cinema sins about it, it all seems like a bit funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? The minute you try to think cinema sins about anything, everything gets real funny. And I mean, like smelling. <laughs> Very true. Like the idea of cinema sins is bad. Yeah, bad, bad channel. I, Thank you, Sean, bad. for your incredible continued work on YouTube, tearing that fucking channel to bits and pieces. <laughs> Next question's yours. Um, if you were to have the chance to sit with Hideki Anno and ask him any questions about Evangelion, would you take that opportunity? What questions would you ask? What questions do you think he might, what answers do you think he might give? Or do you just believe that the show was meant to be up to the viewer's interpretation and nothing more? This is good that you get this because you're the David Lynch guy. Right. So uh, the thing is, is if you want to have an interesting conversation with Hideki Anno, that would be, uh, useful for interpreting Evangelion, you'd have to not ask him about Evangelion very much. Um, right. I, which would be my particular, I think this is an interesting question for us because we're both people that interview other people. 
Yep. Um, so this is really just a, a, a discussion of tactics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I think you'd have to find ways to earn his trust and break his ice and get a sense of like how he thinks about art in general. Like I would ask him about other movies that he, that he likes. I would ask him about other formative experiences that he's had with art as a way to try and disentangle ideas that he may have about Evangelion from the burden of talking about Evangelion itself, you know? And then I think if I got to the point where I had earned his trust along those lines, I would start bringing in Evangelion stuff slowly and subtly. But I wouldn't ask for any definite answers because I don't think he's willing to give them. Yeah. He's he's surely resistant to saying anything enlightening about his work. That's That's known. I agree with everything you said. I guess if it was me, if I had the opportunity, absent of anyone else... The only thing that seems useful is I don't know that anyone who knows much about like magic has asked him about the magical aspects mm. of the mm-hmm. show. Not that I'm the person to do this. Like that guy who's like the former bassist of Blondie, who's like one of the he we think the most powerful chaos musicians in the world, like chaos just, magicians what, what in the, the f- world. What? <laughs> yeah. You've never you ever heard about this? <laughs> The original bassist of Blondie is one of the foremost occult authors on the planet. <laughs> he's he's a he's an esteemed esper expert on chaos magic. What? He should talk with Hideki <laughs> on. It. Um yeah, like if it was me, I'd like sim down and be like, "Hey, so like have you what do you know about Aleister Crowley?" Like do you like have you ever like tried transcendental meditation like stuff like mm-hmm. that right and then you like go backwards into i only ask because you're so good at an evangelion and it's not in the rest of your work ah, right yeah yeah and, and, and then him getting oh i was into one as a kid then i stopped like how'd you get into that were your parents like well like joseph campbell or like what are you what are they reading mm-hmm. right and then you you know get into it like that right I, and i guess i'd try to like wind him back into Okay, so like, like, but like the apocalypse ritual, does that come like, did you have any source texts or is that mostly like you wanting an effect and then picking things from source texts, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's how you get people to like unravel that shit. I would probably ask him about classical music. Yeah. I think that would be a, a fun and interesting conversation, particularly like why that particular Bach piece for the end of Ava fight why Beethoven's ninth, why Handel's Messiah, like that kind of stuff. I'd be interested in knowing like how fluent he is in it and what his rationale is with his particular uses of classical music. But again, that's like my personal professional bias that's leading me down to, you know, having those kind of questions. It's worth noting that like both of those would be actually super risky interviews because those are things that like you could easily just step on a claymore on the first question exactly, and torpedo the whole interview, mm-hmm. right? Like those are both like super risky, like death star trench runs of interviews with like a high profile director. Yeah. <laughs> but if you were to ask me like, how would I strategize? I think those are both really good avenues. Um, so next one is me. Um, and I don't think I even need to chime in with my answer to this one because I'm sure that you can, 
solve this one pretty quickly. Uh, why do you think that Gendo would have affairs with the Akagi women if he still, quote unquote, seemingly loved Yui so much? Yeah, I mean, so like there's two paths to that. And the one is like the inherent problem of monogamy, right? But like ignoring that, putting that aside, because who can possibly unpack that? I, shitty misogyny? Right. And and like that, this is a man who like wants to control everything. He wants to be God. He wants control over like the fate of like all mankind. That's his innermost desire. And it still stems out of like deep self-loathing and a sense of futility in the face of like the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's it might seem weird that like all that will like lead you like bang people half your age. But like, I don't know read politico that's exactly where it takes you right yeah to, to me it's like he's a manipulative shitty dude who yeah. is only having sex with these women to get them to do other things for him um yeah so it has nothing to do with love you know what's love yeah. got to do um <laughs> got to do with it uh yeah gendo sucks that's the best answer <laughs> yeah he's a piece of shit he's everything that's wrong with our gender as loosely ordained as that is. Next question is yours. Which character do you wish there was more character development on? Well, I have an answer, and that answer is Toji. Um, <laughs> of course it's Toji. <laughs> I want more Toji shooting hoops sequences. I want his opinions on the Los Angeles Lakers in the uh, in 2014. Um, right, this is taking place in 2014. What This is like... This opens up whole realms of terrible basketball takes for me. Like, does the NBA still exist? Is he watching Spurs versus the Heat in the finals before going into Bardriel? Like, like who does Toji is, root for? Is LA a city still? Very good question. Right. Right. Does it become the Santa Fe Lakers? <laughs> the Arizona Bay Lakers, to quote. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wait, maybe this is how they actually bring the supersonics back. <laughs> they literally have to... De- I made a basketball joke and it worked! <laughs> they literally have to destroy the entire West Coast to bring back the Sonics. Wow. Oh my god. <laughs> and I live in Seattle. Um, yeah, Toji in general, I feel like I, I would love more Toji. I would love maybe a hair more on the bridge crew in general on sure. on each of them. Like, I would love to know what their apartments look like. I would love to know like who they are. Like I would like one more scene for each of them outside of nerve. Cause that, yeah. you know, sequence of them doing laundry and hanging out is so great. Maya lonely in the chat room. Yeah. Shigeru shredding on guitar at home. Uh, <laughs> like that sort of stuff, you know, doing YouTube playthroughs for no one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> He's got every instrument in the world in a tiny ass studio apartment. Ian and I know this life. Yeah, but I, what do you think? Like, who, who would you like more character development? Fuski. Mm. Those are all great. Those are all like, uh, and those are all the choices that were competing with me besides Ritsuko. Mm-hmm. But Fuski, and we're going to get into this again in future episodes. That's my refrain, right? But just like Fuski, he's. He's the man. I, I kind of dig him. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. Um, I, I'm glad that we did get one full episode that's kind of from his perspective, but a bit more of that. Like, he seems like he's led a very interesting life. Um, and yeah. that that makes him an interesting character in the show. And I would like to see more of that for sure. Seems like the kind of guy you'd like to have a cruddy joint with. 
on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> sure, even though we've already established that he's a teetotaler, but <laughs> I think I think Fuski would take some garbage. <laughs> I think. I'm not going down this rabbit hole about which Ava characters smoke weed. This this would ruin my day. <laughs> Kaji. Kaji. Kaji has all the pre-rolls. Yes. <laughs> Masato doesn't smoke, though. Yeah, well, that's her f- whole fucking problem. Right. Right? It's like she's that friend who it's like, smoke one joint, drink one less beer. You will be happier. Ritzko, I bet, gets... It's like an edibles person. Risco takes too much. Mm-hmm. Like Risco, it's like you're you're like now backward logicing yourself into really bad ethical decisions because you're trying to 3D chess people. <laughs> and of course we know Ray just whatever. Lean. Yeah. Lean, yeah. All lean, we don't matter. Ray Ray'll do it. <laughs> Show it in my clone nose, baby. <laughs> Your turn. Oh, my God, this question. Uh, if human instrumentality happened now and took you, who would Ray take the form of to lure you in? <laughs> I can't answer this question on air because every single answer I get will leave someone mad. And I know that. So uh, discretion's the better part of valor, and I'm uh, opting out. Okay. Here's where I'm at, which is that when it comes to uh, the... The Human Instrumentality Project. After a year of being single in quarantine, I'm a pretty easy date on these kind of things. <laughs> so Ray could show up in a whole host of ways, and I think the it would be just as effective. So, yeah, I can't give an honest answer to this. This is an insanely personal question. <laughs> then I'll move on. Question 13, unlucky 13. Do you ship Kaboshin? Or do you think that Kaworu's only purpose was to manipulate Shinji? Or do you stand somewhere in the middle on that? Depends on whose side you're looking at it from. But I think from Shinji's perspective, their feelings for each other are very real. And from Kaworu's perspective, it is largely manipulation because he is an angel trying to destroy the world at that time. Uh, I agree with everything you said. Is the short version. Uh, longer version. I don't think Koru wants to destroy the world. I think Koru thinks he's doing the right thing or is like fulfilling like a, a purpose for which there is no reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do I think you could call it really genuine? No, I mean, uh, genuine. No, I, I ship whatever Shinji Asuka. Right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So it's not that I don't ship. It's just that like my like my 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 bets in the game are on a different character, which like everyone who's listened to this podcast. Knows, so who cares? <laughs> the best written character in all of TV. There you go. All right. What are your thoughts on people who hate Shinji's character? Do you understand why they might dislike him? Or do you think that it's just a projection of their own issues? Uh, Shinji hate is displaced in, in as far as the series goes. In as far as End of Evangelion goes, in, in that film, I basically dislike Shinji too. It, it, so, like, I think the problem with Shinji stems in, in part from, like, like negative fan power fantasy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is the first step, right? But the other step is, like, is like there's this problem with as someone who's, like, taking a lot of creative writing courses or a lot of, like, screenwriting courses, right? There's this problem with, there's this idea that, like, the main character, the protagonist, must act, right? And um, Shinji is a protagonist who does not act. 
And what this like super 101 level understanding of plot development ignores is that to a great extent, good storytelling involves when the main characters are on the back feet, first of all. So usually in the best movies you can think of or the best TV shows you can think of, the antagonists act and the protagonists react. That's hard in Evangelion because you never know what the antagonists are doing mm-hmm. most of the mm-hmm. time. But I think it it follows that formula to its benefit first. And second of all, there's like a very strong tradition of the indeterminate or the um, ambivalent protagonist is a thing that that exists in a lot of literature. And like your best example of that, I think, is Hamlet. Totally. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. His his big speech is like to be or not to be like, should I try to kill my uncle or should I just fucking hang myself? Like, that's his philosophical question. Right. And the thing people remember him for is at the end of the speech, he he isn't convinced one way or the other of what the right thing to do is and i i think first of all i think that's like in a way realistic and second of all i think that is narratively compelling yeah i think there's a difference between hating the character and hating the function of the character you know right i think it is actually totally reasonable to watch evangelion and be like this guy sucks and enjoy the rest of the show regardless of that fact because guess what many of the characters in the show agree with you you know like oscar also thinks that shinji's behavior is shitty so you're not alone the issue is whether or not that is a stumbling block for your ability to watch the show at all and that's where i have a lot of trouble because i think it reveals a lot of biases about what you believe the function of a main character is and if you only watch things where you're like, this is a character that I like at the center of a show, you're not actually watching the show. You're injecting too much of yourself into it. You know, you're attempting to live the show rather than watch it. Like again, with Mad Men, Don Draper, like, is literally the villain of my life in many ways. Like this is the guy at the center of what I consider to be like evil in America. But he's still an incredibly compelling character, and my hatred of a guy like Don Draper does not prevent me from watching Mad Men. It increases my ability to watch Mad Men. And I think something similar can happen with Evangelion. Like, maybe you'll connect with it to a slightly lesser degree than someone who maybe has some degree of sympathy or empathy with Shinji. But I don't think if you hate Shinji, get past that and continue to watch the show would be my recommendation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it it doesn't, this show doesn't require you to like Shinji. That's not the point. Yeah. I agree completely. Uh, Are there certain things that you disliked upon the show upon first viewing that you've grown an appreciation for now? Hmm. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'll admit that like when I first watched the show all the way through, I probably discounted a lot of the, more subtle stuff, you know? Um, I think I also had maybe a a less favorable view of the humor and the, um, kind of like high school hijinks, which I, I like, obviously it's clear that that's not our favorite part of the show anyway, but I think I have a much more reserved and ambivalent feeling about it, like in terms of its place in what makes the show, the show, And even like the way that the show kind of breaks down, I think I maybe looked at a bit like cynically 
at the time, but now I view wholeheartedly as like the point that this whole show is getting to. So that would be, that would be my answer. Yeah. My answer is the wedding episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, which we were effusive about (laughs) on this podcast. Yeah. But on first watch was like in my bottom tier of, and now I think is like the best I think is like the crowning achievement of maybe the entire creative endeavor. Weirdly enough. Yeah. It it is the kind, like I almost wish that there was like more, I I wish that there were more episodes like that, um, that exist outside of the, the conflict of the angels versus the Avas and are kind of just like, these are these characters living their lives and like having emotions and dealing with shit. Like that actually sounds really dope to me. (laughs) Um, also, on that same level, the uh, the bridge crew episode, the all the technology stops working. Episode. Oh, my God. I mean, that like, yeah, that is a an unbelievably well-crafted episode that I think I viewed as like a slight episode because it's like funny and because it's a very un like unintimidating angel. But upon reviewing, it's so tightly crafted that like, how could you not? How can you not love it? Yeah. Those two were the ones that jumped the most in my estimation. All right. Um, have you ever convinced a friend to watch Neon Genesis Evangelion and they ended up not understanding it? Wait, wait for the next episode. of <laughs> Yes, that. But that guest handles it really well. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah. So next question. What's the best song off the Avis soundtrack? Cruel Angel Angel's thesis. thesis. It's amazing. It's the best. <laughs> It's an, it's an astounding, uh, we should share the, uh, the article where the, the person who performed the song said they had no idea what this series was about and was given like very few notes. Perfect. Perfect. They do the assignment nonetheless. <laughs> the work, the work of a lifetime. Who's the most underrated character? Who's the most overrated character? Uh, okay. Underrated character. Oscar. Joking. Um, cause I know that I'm far from alone in that. Uh, the most underrated character in the show is Ritzko. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. 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 I feel that. Uh, yeah. She's the equivalent of those two episodes where like on this rewatch, I was like, wow, what a superbly crafted character. Uh, I was like, what a tour de force. Mm-hmm. Best supporting actress, Ritzko Akagi, for sure. Overrated character, Ray. I don't stand Ray. People know this. Yeah. I think Ray is a misunderstood character. I think people who stand Ray don't understand her purpose in the narrative is my attitude. I think the, the fan attitude about Ray makes like zero sense to me considering like what she's doing in this TV show. Uh, I just happen to really like what she's doing in this TV show. Um, most underrated character. I mean, I've already like said so many Toji related things that I, I don't want to box myself into a corner here, Sure, but um, sure. I actually, I'm going to, this is maybe counterintuitive, but I think like, because there is this narrative about how much Shinji sucks that, Shinji is kind of almost the most underrated character in his own goddamn television show. You know what I mean? Is that a hot take? (laughs) It's not a hot take. Many people have said that. It's it's not a hot take. It's just that I know what happens in End of Evangelion, so I can't agree. Well, I think him being a total piece of shit in End of Eva is part of my evidence to the fact that, like, him being a shitty person is interesting. Like, and people not like addressing that at face value, I think makes them underrate the character. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
No, I see what you're saying. Yeah. What do you think the future of Neon Genesis will be after the last rebuild is released worldwide? We do get into this a bit in some of the rebuilds that we've recorded thus far, but what's your take as it stands today? Yeah, if this motherfucker makes money, I just like, I, they've tried to do an American movie of it before. It's not gone through. And part of me like thinks it never will because like the overt religious stuff will make it like impossible right but because that's the same problem with his dark materials and they tried to make a movie off of his dark materials and then a tv show and right it, the tv show is like better than better than the the film but the film is bad mm-hmm. like outright fucking bad um in large part because they like take like the theological argument and just swerve so hard like swerve like lamborghini mercy like that bad <laughs> um and and it does not serve the story well and the thing is like if you were going to do an american version of evangelion leaving aside the problem of whitewashing which is a huge problem yeah they would like to make it commercially viable in the u.s on the appropriate scale would need to swerve the religious thing and that would kill it so there you go i think that's gonna happen and i hate it i don't think there should be a future i think the the story is over And if anything is to happen with it, it should happen after enough time for us to have a different take. Like I'm, I think what has been said has been said. And if anything more needs to be said, life hasn't allowed that to happen yet would be my very eggheaded answer. My apologies. So what's your least favorite fan theory? All of them. (laughs) All of, <laughs> all of them except for the ones yeah. that I construct, which is that <laughs> Correct. that Ray does drugs care. and is a SoundCloud rapper. <laughs> That's I construct. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Mutual construction of our, our personal headcanons are all correct. Everyone else is incorrect. Just give me Ray with the Takashi 69 face. <laughs> oh, my God. That's my most favorite fan theory. Um. Oh, that well, that's the next question. What's your personal favorite fan theory or what or what is a theory you came up with yourself that you enjoy? We already gave the best possible answer, but um, I also I, I stand the magical interpretation of the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like understand that like any magical interpretation or religious interpretation of the series needs to leave at least 30 percent of it up to headcanon. Like I know yeah. that. I get yeah. that. I, that's how so that's how I feel about okay. the fourth wall breaking ending. Like I think that's the the most clear-eyed way I've felt about the show is understanding episode 26 to take place outside of the television show and like that whole very yeah. galaxy brain way of, of viewing the show that we established in our episode about the finale. That's my, the most gratifying theory that I've found about it that is not maybe explicitly stated in the text itself. I don't know. I think it's incredibly useful. It really clarified my own feelings about the show. So I think it's, that's the one for me. Your writs go on bong rips. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite scene of artistic experimentation? For example, the elevator scene that feels like it's a decade long. Well, um, I'm actually going to take this earlier into the show than you would expect. I think it's the fact that we don't see the fight between Satchiel and Unit 1 until Episode 2. That's this really strong choice. Um, that was like the, one of the most striking artistic choices um and it's it's really it's an easy one it's it's a simple one by comparison to the more outlandish stuff that happens in 
you know, the latter half of the show, but I think it's, it's remarkable. It's so powerful. Um, that kind of time jump is it's so clean and it doesn't feel like a fake out. It doesn't feel like it's smarter than you. It just feels like the right way to tell the story in a really like profoundly beautiful way. Again, I feel like a broken record, but I'm going to go with, and here's, it's an echo because we're going to echo from the beginning to the end. I love the, the sketch style evolution sequence Mm. in episode 26. Um, I, I, I think like on an aesthetic level, I think it's, it's gorgeous. I think it like illuminates both the plot and the thematic underpinnings of the show. And, and I think it, it aims to be a transcendental experience in the way that the show also mm-hmm. does and, and largely succeeds. So I, I like, I wasn't on board with episode 26 until you get to that point after the duck amok line line totally and and when you get there i'm like oh there is something here i will i like i will say of the of the lengthy one like static shots i think that the the second one the ode to joy sequence with kauru being held by unit one is the better of the two yeah not to I, i love the elevator sequence i think it's great but the second one uses the same technique to much more powerful ends in my humble opinion. What episode do you think gets unnecessary hate? I think we both have the same answer for this. The last. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People, people who like don't fuck with the ending. You're wrong. I also don't. Are there episodes outside of those that get like that people generally hate? Like, I don't know if they're jet alone. Yeah. But we agree that that's correct. So you know, we're not going to dispute. There's got to be Jet Alone fans. It's it's like people who like Faith No More before Mike Patton was the singer. <laughs> they exist, right? Pr- I know they exist. Yeah. There's just there are too many Evangelion fans in general for there not to be some holdouts right. on Jet Alone. Hit us up if you happen to be a Jet Alone stan. I'd love to know or don't whether you exist or not. What other animes would you recommend for people who enjoy Ava? I feel like we could do a whole episode on this question. But yeah. here's here's where I'm at. I I I, uh, I love you, Marta. But I do sort of have like an issue with the idea behind this question, and that is a lot of my life has involved me chasing hits, and not like chasing number ones, like not like chasing singles, right? <laughs> not in the way that I, mean, I literally like, have done in my life. But yeah, <laughs> not saying I haven't. It's just Ian's better at it than me, believe it or not. I mean, like chasing the high you get. Yeah, 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 yeah. From something. And um, it's funny because like one of the fundamental identities in my life is like metalhead, as we've talked about before. And I'm a metalhead completely because I was chasing the hit that Metallica gave me. And chasing that hit, surprise, surprise, has not actually resulted in me finding a band better than Metallica. (laughs) Yeah, of course not. (laughs) Well, but say that in the metal underground and and they'll throw full fucking tall boys a beer at your face whenever we're back together right i I Um, kill it dodgeball try me (laughs) (laughs) you can't chase hits that's not how life works things are their own unique thing and they're never gonna they're never gonna the best worship or clone in the world is never gonna give you the same hit as the og And, and and like i feel like people's lives would be better if they accepted that as truth Mm -hmm. with that said there are some fucking things that i think if you like even going you should check out actually 
I, there's I've got some totally, ideas. Totally. Right? Okay, I got a list. I got a list. Is that okay? First thing first, if you watched Ava and haven't seen or read Gona Guy's Devil Man, you're missing out because Devil Man is the biggest influence on the show I can find. Um, particularly the ending. Uh, Netflix recently did an updated version of Devil Man that is like a little over the top from an original that is also like over the fucking top, but is worth watching. Zeta Gundam, the second Gundam TV series, is like dark and has a lot of like meaning of life shit at the end. Zeta Gundam fucks. I'm into it. Madoka Magic. That would be my number one recommendation. Just like if you know, you know, it would be my. If you know, about. you know about Madoka Magica. Um, it deconstructs genre the same way that that Evangelion does. It decon like in the way that Evangelion is a response to Mobile Suit Gundam. Madoka Magica is a response to Sailor Moon and Card Captors and all of Card Captors is a, is like a cash in on Sailor Moon. But yeah, like that whole universe of type of show. You know what I mean? Right. The magical girl genre. Um, I've also heard that revolutionary girl Utna is similar, but I have not confirmed that. Uh, so I, I, but I, I feel like it would be negligence to not mention it just because the thing about revolutionary girl Utina is I saw the movies first mm-hmm. and I saw the weirdest movie first. So like with revolutionary girl Utina, I'm the guy who saw death and rebirth. first. <laughs> So sorry that happened to you. It's it is good, but I'm like, oh, they all turn into race cars. What? <laughs> it's weird. That's an actual thing that happens. Um, same writer as Madoka Magica. Check out Psychopass, the first season. It's a cool like detective noir set in like a techno dystopia, mm-hmm. and like Evangelion just involves people openly talking shit to one another using philosophical quotes. Like there's a sick Pascal burn, which is weird. I love that. It's great. It's fucking dope. It's fucking dope. Um, Fooly Cooly FLCL. Another, I think like very obvious choice, but a good one. Super obvious choice. And weirdly like a little more palatable. Mm -hmm. Also shorter. Much, much shorter, much denser in terms of like ideas per second. But that's because of the length of the show. Yeah. And in a weird way, it's more like a ref- a refutation of Evangelion. Like that series is kind of like Gainax, like saying we're not just Evangelion. Mm-hmm. Right. There's more to but the world still, than just that. Yeah. But it does cover like a lot of the same ground, which mm-hmm. is weird. Um, On that same note, we should talk about... Kill La Kill and Gurren Lagan. Um, even though I think both of them are flawed in a way that Evangelion isn't. I I do like both. So Gurren Lagan is a, is another like mecha reclamation show, and Kill La Kill in its own way is like a magical girl reclamation show. Um, and they're both headed by this guy named Hiroyushi Imaishi. Who was one of the key animators on Evangelion. And he uh, does Gurren Lagann as a director with Evangelion. It's a huge success. He leaves Studio Gainax and starts a new studio called Studio Trigger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've only seen of their stuff. I've only seen Kill La Kill. And it is like weirdly embarrassing because like nudity is a primary theme. 
I remember the Tumblr discourse around this show very distinctly. Yeah. But it's also like in the same way that Evangelion is like if you wanted like Evangelion where Kaoru is like the primary antagonist and like the second lead from the first episode in the queer way, that's kill la kill. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it like it is like it centers queerness in the way that you almost want Evangelion to center it. So like for that alone, I think kill la kill is fucking cool. Um, and the last thing I'm going to say on this is there was like a brief bumper crop of like Ava ripoffs and they are by and large, not good. The only one I remember liking is called Rosifon with an X. Um, it was made by studio bones in 2002. And, um, it also has like a weird time thing Mm. as it's like general, conceit is the idea is like Tokyo's been locked inside a parallel dimension where time moves slower and they get the main character out and he has to like with his like flying golem robot spearhead the war between the rest of the world and the weird alternate time dimension aliens that are controlling Tokyo and I remember it being, first of all, gorgeous. Um, and second of all, weirdly heartbreaking. I want to rewatch Razafon really recently. Re- really soon. That's something that like, has come from me watching Evangelion is like me wondering, does Razafon hold up? Mm-hmm. Speaking personally, uh, as we've already announced, season two will be no surprise to you that I think that following the philosophical lines, I think uh, watching Paranoia Agent is a great way to explore uh, some this is a very modernist show in its philosophical issues. Paranoia agent is very postmodern postmodern. Um, in a similar sense, I think serial experiments lane, uh, addresses a lot of other postmodern concerns that I think would be interesting to someone who's like, okay, I've gotten the Ava stuff out of the way. Let me t- tackle some like issues of postmodernity, um, and the internet in general. Um, so I think that those would be some great follow-ups. Other than that, I'm going to second Madoka Magica. I think that show kicks so much ass. Um, yeah. so <laughs> the end of Madoka Magica. Whew. Oh my God. Um, let's, let's smooth this into the next um, sort of extension of the same question. Uh, what other works do you think have parallels with Evangelion, whether it's intentional or unintentional books, shows, movies, music, etc.? So this kind of enters into the world of non-anime things that give you that same anime uh, uh, that same neon genesis evangelion feeling um i happen to have just read a trilogy of books um by koji suzuki uh called the ring trilogy which you may know because you may have heard of the very famous horror movie ring or ringu yeah as it turns out, the sequels have a fuck ton to do with Evangelion um, thematically. Really? Yeah, the, the two sequels to the original, like the original book, Ring, is very similar from my understanding to the movies in that it's just following like the haunted videotape narrative. The sequels, um, Spiral and Loop, kind of edge onto End of Ava territory in some really really fascinating ways. So I would, I would recommend giving those books a read. They're really fucking cool. They're a really great example of an artist 
turning in on themselves and interrogating their own work in a really, really, really cool way. Similarly, I recently rewatched eight and a half. Um, oh yeah. And Oh yeah. If you want to like talk about dealing with Catholicism and teenage sexuality and guilt and regret and what it means to create and what it means to like, live in the world and not know what you want and gradually have to come to the decision that you have to do something eight and a half, eight and a half is fucking beautiful. If you haven't seen that movie, like it may only make sense to you if you've, if you've had your ass kicked a bit by life, but (laughs) it's really, really fucking good. Um, Amazing movie. And if you're into heavy music that happens to be Ava themed, check out Gridlink. That would be my recommendation. Are you going to you're going to start with Gridlink and not Discordance Axis? Uh, that's a personal preference of mine. I actually prefer Gridlink to Discordance Axis, but that's I'm a freak like that. Long Hina is is better than the Inalienable Dreamless, but the I will okay. So this is for like real heads now, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. Um the two best grindcore songs ever written are in order Corporation Pull In by Terrorizer at number 1 and number 2 Jigsaw by Gridlink. Or by Discordance Access. And if you want a bootleg... <laughs> well, okay. I'll, I'll, if your desire for more Ava-themed punk, hardcore, metal stuff, I, I can't help but recommend my own record, Trials. It ha- it draws a lot <laughs> from Evangelion. Um, if you know me, then, you know, you get why. We'll go into our respective anime-themed bands later. <laughs> spoiler i literally wrote a song called well i didn't write it i had the idea for and then my band wrote the demo and then i wrote the lyrics to a song called jojo's d-beat adventure so oh my god (laughs) it's fucking dope anything else any sort of stuff that like challenges the act of reading it tends to remind me of ava so even like i'm gonna it's funny i know like one of the people that left a comment on our really nice review of our podcast said like oh it's so great that these guys are like unpretentious and talking about anime and it's like uh, well buddy i'm about to reference gravity's rainbow <laughs> but- i was waiting i wish i had a shot because i was like i will take a shot when you mention a thomas pinchon <laughs> yeah i i think that the ending of gravity's rainbow by thomas pinchon reminds me a lot of neon genesis evangelion but that's just me. I'm a weirdo. At this point, having done this podcast, everything looks Ava-like to me. So right. I have to kind of remind myself that not everything that I'm looking at actually resembles Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, things I can think of with big Ava energy. Um, the band Killing Joke. Hmm. Uh, interested in the occult. Interested in time. Interested in authority. Wild career. Super influential, but still not known enough in the United States. Killing joke. Fuck with that band. Um, Best known for the song Love Like Blood. The Gamera Trilogy. We'll talk more about that in a later episode. But um, those are really good monster movies. If you like Evangelion, a bunch of Evangelion staffers worked on them. The first season of the German television series Dark. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Has like almost too much Ava energy. Absolutely. Uh, it's really remarkable. Oh, but like, my take about that show is that it's just homestuck, but that's just me. You're not wrong. 
the thing the thing about that show is like unlike evangelion they decide to try and do more seasons and it's like oh this is a bad idea i think um i already mentioned his mark his dark materials i already mentioned sandman if i'm mentioning sandman we should bring up alan moore's run of swamp thing Mm -hmm. there's ava energy there and if you're just into genre deconstruction in general i feel like alan moore is like primary text for interrogating the superhero narrative in a lot of ways so you you do well to read alan moore in general i think he's really good and i think he gets uncharitably diminished to certain he's almost like a yeah he's like a victim of his own success right specifically of like watchmen's success Mm -hmm. right like they've just done so much with that comic that it like undermines the comic even though the comic's still good and also i think a lot of what they've done with it is is actually not bad i i don't have like anything i don't have too much negative to say even about like snyder's watchmen movie i I don't like i don't hate it it's like my favorite thing snyder's done probably because of the source material Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah he's he's such a adherent to the source material for that movie that like he can't help but translate some of Moore's genius onto the screen. Yeah. It's it, like, it works in spite of itself. Right. Yeah. And I thought the Watchmen TV show was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I liked it. It didn't quite nail the ending, but I didn't expect it to. And that that's fine. You know, nailing the ending's hard. This is an Evangelion podcast. I'm going to skip a couple, go down to Ted Chang. If you've never read Hugo award winning author, Ted Chang, um, he's most famous for he's got two book of short stories. That's all he's done. Um, the first of them is called The Story of Your Life and Other Stories. It was adapted into the movie Arrival. Great movie. Um, Love that one. Great movie. The short story is better just because it avoids like the, the Hollywood like race to beat the clock ending thing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And has has a much more poetic like bow on the end. But like Ted Chang and also like the underpinning of religiosity in it is important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you're looking for like mind bending endings. Chinese author Xi Jin Liu. Oh, best known for yeah, three body, three body problem. problem. I've been, I've started reading that, but I haven't gone super deep into it yet. Oh boy. Wait for the end. Uh, you don't even know where it's going. Some crazy shit, some crazy shit, man. And last I'll say there's a drama on AMC that's now done called halt and catch fire. If you're looking at for like a real, like in-depth interrogation of queerness, like just a great character drama where like their sexuality and their pasts is like confounded with their desire for a better future, but not sure of how, how to get there mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like flawed, but really relatable characters like genre wise, it could not be more different, but halt and catch fire to me is like one of the only things I've seen. That's made me made my heart ache the way Ava's main cast makes my heart ache. I cannot recommend it enough those are my takes i think i think halt and catch fire is like my madman word yeah i i came to it after madman because i feel like there is sort of a an idea that it was like it was madman for the 80s i i really enjoyed the first season i know it gets exponentially better after the first season from what i've heard and so i'm really excited i i just like it's one of those things you just lose track of a TV show. I would love to catch up on the rest of Halt and Catch Fire. I've heard nothing but great stuff about that show. So fuck yeah. Like a baby, I cried. Like a blubbering baby. All right. Uh, so from Kyle, um, I believe this is Kyle who... All- a friend of mine. Mm-hmm, left a, a very nice review on 
the Apple podcast app. Uh, I know you already have your plan set for another season as well as the rebuild films, but maybe in the further future, have you considered doing any coverage on the Evangelion manga and how it differs from the show? You know, I can't even remember how the manga ends. I think I may have not gotten to the very end. Weirdly enough, I haven't read a page of it, so I I have no sense of how good it is or how I feel like if we were to talk about it, we'd have to talk about it as a manga rather than right. as a TV show, which may take like a whole other uh, type of approach. You know what I mean? I don't know if it's worth doing a whole season just on the manga. My my instinct says no. I will say the manga is good. Like it's good. Um, but it's a lot of the same stuff. Mm -hmm. Like we've already covered like some of the differences, but it's a lot of the same stuff, but it's like, it's, it's good. The early part of it means as much to me as the early part of the show does. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Certainly if I can get my hands on it, I'd be open to like, I obviously we both love this show a lot. So I'd be down to crack it open and see if there's anything that I can get out of it. I think it depends on like having done that. Is there something to be said about it that is different than what we've already said? Like, I don't want to repeat ourselves too much, even though I feel like a lot of this episode has been repeating ourselves, (laughs) but you know what I mean? Like I'm open to it, but I'm not like, dead set on it you know we're repeating the future we're committing time crimes time time crimes time crimes um also speaking of manga have you read any of the other manga such as campus apocalypse anime anima excuse me anima anima and angelic days set in alternate futures from the series after the discussion about the series finale's high school rom-com sequence i feel like angelic days would drive everyone insane <laughs> probably correct. Uh, long yeah long answer short no <laughs> i've not nor do i have any interest <laughs> um seems like a bad time to me i i like I, like I, I don't want rom-com ava i don't want that i would only want just like i don't want i don't I, like just like i don't want halton catch fire but they're in terminator <laughs> right <laughs> Right, right, right. Um, Yeah, I feel like that actress is just stuck in the 80s perpetually. Like that one episode of Black Mirror, she was in the Terminator movie. She was in Blade Runner 2049. She's got the hair. Yeah. Like it's a thing, right? She just has the look. No, I I don't have a ton of interest, to be quite frank, in the out of genre Evangelion rom-com experiences. It couldn't drive us insane because doing this show has already driven me completely insane. Um, yeah. <laughs> in that now we're going crazy. Anytime I hear '70s soft rock, I now think, ah, music for the end of the world. <laughs> like, so I don't know. I, it's interesting to me that there are these other versions of Evangelion, but I'm not. I think the point has been proven, and the sense that I get from the outside is that a lot of these are just milking the cow further. And I don't have too much interest in that as like, I don't know, maybe that's elitist of me. Maybe that's genre, some genre bullying on my part. Maybe it's the bro zone layer effect on my thinking. The bro zone. <laughs> but no, I, I, I honestly, I, I'm not like, gonna go out of my way and watch the uh the rom-com versions of ava 
in my spare time, if I'm going to be real with you. Brozone sounds like the worst superhero. Right, it's like the guy from The Incredibles. I actually have never seen The Incredibles, right? I, I shouldn't even come. Okay, no, you you actually are missing out. The first Incredibles movie is good. I hear it's very Alan Moore-esque. To a, a... There, there is there's an element of that. And you know what? The second one's not fucking bad. Um, but I've spent too much time professionally working on Samuel Jackson quotes to be able to have an objective. <laughs> so. Fair, fair. But, but that's a story for a different episode, a different after party for a different project. <laughs> um, yes, those are all of our questions. I'm really happy that we got all those. Uh, thanks, Marta, for adding an entire 45 minutes to this show. But I'm, I'm truly am not mad about it. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm really glad that anyone cares that much to have that many questions about what we think like that, that's crazy to me um and i'm really appreciative of it i feel weirdly like lighter now yeah that's probably just the vaccine the imperial stout and the vaccine <laughs> yeah 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 well okay so for season two i'll be actually like well rested you say that now, I'm sure that will not be the case. <laughs> yeah, who the fuck knows? I'll actually be able to see my friends. Wow, shit. Yeah, I don't know exactly when. We're still, because we're bringing in guests for the Rebuild episodes, uh, the timeline is not going to be as precise from here on out. Once we have season two in the bags, it'll happen the same way. You'll get right. all of it sequentially week week to week. But personally speaking, I would rather have great shit lined up than bullshit our way through week to week with this podcast. Oh yeah. You know? I, yeah. I'm I, plus no offense. I like, I love you. You're one of my greatest friends and I love our listeners, but I personally need just a little bit of a break. Totally. I think that's an, I, that's an, I need a breather. That, that's another reason why I'm not like chomping at the bit to dive into the Evangelion manga and other versions. It's like, I think I'm good on Ava for a minute. Like once we're done with the rebuilds, I'm really excited to take this, all the skills that we've gained from doing this and applying it to other things and to something else. Yeah. 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 Um, well also I need to make the time to like watch all of Satoshi Kon's shit. Right. Cause there's a bunch of Satoshi Kon stuff I haven't even seen. And the other thing is like, there's like the cool thing about doing Satoshi Kon. We'll get into this, but like there's, sub avenues you can go into right there's a whole bunch of like other interesting narratives that are woven into his career we've never even talked about like shonen anime here but he did one Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and it's like way more important than mecca in the united states so like it's worth just talking about that even if i don't love it so totally yeah i mean there's there's many things that i think we've learned from doing this first season that i like a lot of the corrections that we've made, I'm really excited to take the lessons that we learned from those corrections and apply them to Satoshi Kon. Like I'm just as excited to talk about Kon's work as a director as I am to talk about Susumu Hirasawa's work as a composer, for example. Um, And I'm excited to like draw out all, all the other sort of parallel works that people made in conjunction with the stuff that we uh compress under the title of like cone movies you know what i mean right yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah i mean i (laughs) it seems just so crazy like we've had the 
last 15 weeks, 16 weeks, like four months, uh, to, <laughs> to adjust to the fact that people really like this podcast. Um, so I think like our, our reaction to it now is maybe like somewhat more muted than it would be in the beginning of January, for example. Um, but, or like mid or like mid March, like yeah, when it really, when it was off. obvious that people, when it was obvious that people care. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I think we're going to do is I think I'm going to try and, spread this podcast to more platforms because it's obvious to me that like there's other platforms that we could have used that we didn't implement totally right yeah i mean like so i think i would like to leave the door open if anyone does have further questions maybe even based off of the information we provide in this episode if people keep pestering us or keep you know i I don't say pestering negatively if if people have further questions or have other stuff that they want to hit us up with. Um, I'm happy to feel that, you know, like even if it's not even for another podcast episode, like please email us and hit us up. We're like happy to talk to you and happy to, uh, sort all this sort of shit out. Like it, it, this has been a really productive experience of like hearing about what people are interested in talking about and what people think about the show. And so absolutely like this channel remains open and we would love to hear more from you going forward. Could not agree more just cause it's the, after the end of Evangelion party doesn't mean it's after the end of us. What? Mm-hmm, what? Mm-hmm. Fuck. Yeah. So I think we just gave everyone the fan service. Like, I don't know if I need to promise that anymore. <laughs> no, there's not going to be any fan service in the future. Instead, there's going to be time crimes. Time crimes. So until next, until next time, more time crimes. All right. See you later, Joseph. <laughs>